Welcome to the Starting Strength Channel. This is podcast number six in our series of uh, attempts to enlighten you about strength and conditioning. This today, today I think I'm going to read again. Everybody enjoyed it when I read to them like children last time from the book. Today I'm reading from the big book. This will be from Second Condominiums 867. 0975 extension 12 actually practical programming for strength training the third edition scheduled to be out by Christmas of this year Uh, the recording date today is the 27th of September so we've got quite a bit of work to do between now and then but I'm through with about five chapters this is uh, from the fifth chapter I was so impressed with what I'd written, I thought I'd share it with you today, and I'm going to try to the best of my ability to use my brilliant, previously highly developed radio broadcasting voice in order to uh, not confuse the Australians who are no doubt listening to this podcast. So we are going to start. This is Chapter 5 from the new version of Practical Programming for Strength Training. This is the exercise selection section of the chapter. The combinations of exercises included in a workout and in a long-term training program directly affect progress. The most important consideration is to select exercises that have a direct application to the training objective. For a novice, the primary consideration is strength, since strength is the most effective way to improve the performance of any athlete who is not already very strong. Strength applies in a general way to any athletic performance, and a novice needs no particular specialization in exercises since an increase in strength applies to any sport in a general way. Strength and its corollary power are developed by a very few exercises that are very general in nature. The squat, press, deadlift, bench press, and the power clean, and the power snatch are the best developers of strength and power. The improved capacity for strength and its explosive application applies to every sport that demands it, irrespective of how it was specifically acquired, because strength and power are applied specifically on the field through practice of the skill used on the field. Strength is most effectively acquired through the use of these specific exercises that are the most efficient at developing strength. No consideration should be given to making the strength exercises look like the sport, because this will mean that the effectiveness of the exercise for developing strength has been made a secondary consideration. Now, this is critical to the understanding of the very basis of strength and power for athletics. Strength and power are best acquired in ways that develop strength best and power best, not in ways that look like the application of that strength and power on the field. The very general characteristics of strength and power are developed by training for strength and power and then applied specifically to the sport during the practice of that sport. Squats, for example, are the best way to build general strength. So we squat in a way that produces the strongest squat for the greatest amount of muscle mass over the longest range of motion longest efficient range of motion, because that is the way to produce the strongest squat and therefore the most strength. We do not squat in a way that mimics positions 
or stances encountered in, for example, football, because that would mean a less efficient squat and would compromise the ability of the squat to produce the greatest strength. Which is more useful? Alignment that squats 550 pounds with a full range of motion and the stance that best facilitates that squat through that full range of motion, or a lineman that quarter squats 650 with a stance that mimics his stance off the line? Now, this is an important question, and the answer may not be obvious, so be careful how you answer it. Here's a hint. How much can the 550-pound full squatter do at a quarter squat, and in any stance or in any depth below that? Virtually every single effective exercise program for sports performance will include the following rather short list of weight room exercises. Squat, press, deadlift, bench press, clean or power clean, jerk, snatch or power snatch, and chin-ups or pull-ups. And few, if any, other exercises are ever necessary for the effective strength and power development of an athlete at any level of training advancement. Novices and advanced athletes use the same exercises because these are the movement patterns that must get stronger to drive increases in strength and power. The differences in programming lie in variations of load, intensity, frequency, and rest. This has pivotal implications for strength and conditioning for athletes. Contrary to popular representation by the functional training community, the variables to be manipulated for strength and power training for athletes are load, intensity, frequency, and rest, not the number or variety of the exercises used in training. The purpose of strength and power training is to get stronger and more powerful. This can be done most effectively with seven or eight exercises and their variations programmed for an increase in intensity and volume over time. It cannot be accomplished with 30 different exercises that cannot be revisited frequently enough to strengthen them significantly. Or that, more importantly, lack sufficient muscle mass and neuromuscular resources to create a systemic stress that drives systemic adaptation. There are only a few barbell exercises that fit the needs of athletes to become stronger and more powerful, and those are the ones that must be trained. The others can only be exercised. The next consideration in exercise selection is how many times per week an exercise or type of exercise should be done. This would be based on a lifter's level of training advancement. Novices will train three times per week, squatting, pressing, or bench pressing, and deadlifting or power cleans every workout, with some chins done once per week. Novices do not benefit from training more frequently and the details will be examined in Chapter 6. Once the novice phase of training is completed and a strength base has been firmly established, other considerations become important. By this time, the trainee has some idea about the direction his training will take. Competitive Olympic lifting, powerlifting, or sports that a strength and power base enables him to play are different expressions of the continued reason to train. The approach he takes will be determined by which path toward the application of his training he follows. Olympic weightlifters typically train more than powerlifters, perhaps five to six days a week, because of the need to practice the technically challenging lifts and to continue to get stronger at the same time. 
Power lifters tend to train three or four days per week, and players of field sports must work their strength training into a practice schedule determined by team activities. As a general rule, the more advanced the athlete, the more frequent the training. But this is not always the case. Extremely advanced power lifters, due to their accumulation of many years' experience, possibly a few injuries, and a considerable level of strength, may decide that twice a week is sufficient to be under the bar. This is probably not representative of competitive athletes in most other sports, which tend to see advanced open competitors in their late 20s who have to train frequently to continue driving adaptation. Workouts should consist of three to five exercises. With the most emphasis placed on basic exercises and any assistance exercises done at the end of the workout, athletes seldom need more exercises than this. But if circumstances warrant, say, six exercises, it may be more effective to do them in two workouts per day rather than all in a single session. Few coaches and athletes are afforded the luxury of unlimited time in the gym, so if six exercises are required and they must be done in one workout, try to do them efficiently, perhaps by doing your warm-ups for the next exercise between the work sets of the one you're doing now, or reevaluate your program. Exercise variation. It is normal to vary the individual exercises and total number of exercises included in a training program at several levels. The individual workout, the training cycle, and according to the advancement of the trainee. For the novice, effective workouts are short, basic, intense, and rapidly progressive. Exercises are chosen to accomplish the program's specified goal in the most efficient manner possible. This means large-scale, multi-joint exercises that will always include the squat, deadlift, press, bench press, and power clean, unless there are injuries that prevent the inclusion of one that can't be performed. But again, productive training is facilitated by the use of movements that can be trained, and not all exercises fit this description. The reason is simple and obvious. Squats, presses, deadlifts, bench presses, and the Olympic lifts work the whole body at one time and therefore allow the use of enough weight to make dramatic levels of stress and subsequently adaptation possible. Chopping the body up into its constituent components and then working these components separately lacks the capacity to make things change. The stress that can be applied to one piece at a time never adds up to the same stress that can be applied to the whole thing working as a system. And the whole body is evolved to work as a system by the selective processes that have accumulated the genotype and subsequently the phenotype. The term synergy is the interaction of multiple elements in a system to produce a coordinated effect greater than the sum of the individual effects of the separate elements. The accumulated action of the parts functioning in their anatomically and biomechanically predetermined roles as components in a complex system of levers and motors is the very definition of synergy. It's also the very definition of coordination. The normal functions of the different components of the musculoskeletal system can't be simulated by isolating them and making them work independently of their roles in the system because such a large part of their function involves their coordinated relationships with all the other components. So the basis of effective programming for strength training is the use of multi-joint barbell exercises, large muscle masses working in a coordinated manner,
These exercises are simply normal human movement patterns that are loaded using a barbell with progressively heavier weights. As the weight increases, it becomes more important that the movements be performed correctly. Effective strength training therefore requires that coaches be effective teachers of movement skills and that athletes become better at learning them. As trainees proceed from the novice stage to the intermediate stage, the number of exercises in the program increases. This is because they have gained strength and motor skill and can now tolerate and directly benefit from exposure to a wider variety of movement patterns. However, effective strength training programming will never devolve into the rotation of exercises for the sake of variety and excitement. The variables in effective strength training are always load, volume, intensity, and rest. And variety for its own sake is a hallmark of exercise, not training. Progress in strength training means a progressive increase in force production. And this requires the use of exercises that permit that progressive increase. Basic exercise, like the aforementioned squat, press, deadlift, bench press, and the Olympic lifts, can be used with progressively heavier weights for years at a time, and assistance exercises cannot. Assistance exercises are the usual culprit when variety is introduced inappropriately into programming. Assistance exercises use less muscle mass, a shorter kinetic chain, or are some variant of the parent exercise that is less efficient at allowing as much weight to be lifted or more weight to be lifted through a partial range of motion. In Starting Strength Basic Barbell Training 3rd Edition, these exercises are categorized as either assistance exercises proper, which are variations on the parent exercise like rack pulls, stiff leg deadlifts, RDLs, close grip benches, and low box squats, or ancillary exercises which work a group of muscles in a way that the primary exercises do not, like a chin up or a back extension. Assistance exercises can be very effectively used to address a weakness in a particular part of the range of motion of the primary movement. Partial movements like rack pulls, partial benches, and press lockouts in the rack that use heavier weights through a shorter range of motion of the range of motion of the parent exercise can be improved right alongside their parent exercises and can be used to drive progress for as long as they are trained. But they do not constitute a replacement for the parent exercise. Rather, they are used to drive continued progress on the primary lifts for more advanced athletes. An exception to this is the use of partial squats, perhaps the single most common distraction in any weight room. Half squats allow the use of much heavier weights, but they fail to recruit the elements of the posterior chain that come into play at the bottom of the range of motion the adductors, external rotators, and the full loading of the hamstrings. Because of the knees forward, back vertical technique used to do them, and the anatomical fact that the use of these muscles is dependent upon a full range of motion to call them into contraction. Below parallel squats paused on a box are a quite useful variation for advanced trainees. But partial squats above parallel should never form any component of an athlete's training. Remember, a lineman who squats 550 with a full range of motion is always stronger than a lineman who quarter squats 650. Novices should make progress 
on the primary exercises for as long as possible. And when the level of training advancement reaches the point at which progress becomes difficult on the basic exercises, variety is introduced with the addition of these assistance exercises. For a novice, the premature substitution of assistance movements for the primary exercises is the fastest, easiest way to stall progress in a strength program. Even more distracting are the types of exercises that have no ability to drive long-term progress in strength and power. Isolation movements for single muscle groups like preacher curls and leg extensions utilize the changing length of the lever arm to produce the resistance against the isolated joint they are working. One muscle or muscle group is never used in isolation in athletics and it is pointless to train its strength and neuromuscular function in isolation. In contrast, the primary barbell exercises all feature the load moved through a straight vertical line over the center of balance of the body against the floor, the middle of the foot, or the scapulas against the bench in the case of the bench press. In these exercises, strength and neuromuscular coordination are achieved by the whole body working like the system it actually is. In addition, all the basic barbell exercises can be assessed with a one rep maximum effort. Now this doesn't mean that they all should be tested for one rep max, it just means that they can be. Novices will have a new theoretical 1RM every workout since they are getting stronger every workout by doing sets of five. So 1RM testing is pointless for novices and for intermediates too since they are still getting stronger every week. In contrast, assistance exercises cannot effectively be done for 1RM. Imagine a 1RM preacher curl or dumbbell fly, and you can easily see the point. Increases in exercise variety are therefore constrained to the use of movements that have the capacity to contribute to the objectives of the program. During the late novice and intermediate phases, an athlete who will ultimately proceed to the advanced level defines the course of his career, choosing a sport to train for and compete in. Many decisions are required of the athlete at this point. Strengths and weaknesses, abilities and interests, time and financial constraints, and the support of family and friends are gauged. This involves experimentation with training and its application to the chosen sport, and it requires a greater variety of exercises than a novice either needs or can tolerate. And intermediate skills are developing as fast as his strength, power, and recovery ability. It is at this time when the ability to learn is peaking that an athlete benefits most from exposure to new movement patterns and new types of stress. This would be the time to introduce the Olympic lifts as regular features of the program. They fit the criteria for effective training exercises and exposure to them hones the athletic skills of the athlete, challenging the ability to move the barbell through space efficiently as well as with more force and power. They are an important addition to the preparation for any sport, not just for competitive Olympic weightlifting. Advanced athletes already know the things an intermediate is learning and have by definition developed their competitive careers into a specialization in one sport. These athletes use fewer exercises because they know exactly which ones are relevant to competitive success and know how to manipulate their well-developed stress adaptation mechanisms. An elite athlete is an accomplished competitor, an expert in his sport, and is far along his training trajectory, 
approaching the limit of his potential. He has developed a highly individual training program that might involve only four or five exercises, but that very specifically develops critical aspects of his already highly adapted muscular and neuromuscular and psychological abilities. For advanced athletes, programming for strength training may also become more specialized with respect to the metabolic demands of the sport. Most athletes in most sports will never need training complexity beyond the intermediate level because they are unable to devote sufficient time to the strength program during the training year to exhaust the potential of the intermediate weekly overload event. An advanced lifter is a competitor in powerlifting or Olympic weightlifting, but the advanced phases of programming may also be reached by competitors in strongman, the field throwing events, Highland games, and in some football players, depending on the way they were coached in the weight room. If the sport requires brief, explosive bouts, of high power generated by the whole body. The training program must be capable of producing this adaptation, either on the field or in the weight room. If the sport requires pulses of explosion for several seconds, repeated over a longer period of time, the exercises used in either the strength program or the field practice, and perhaps both, must challenge the depth of the ATP-CP system's ability to provide for this. If the sport demands muscular endurance at intensities near anaerobic threshold for extended periods, the program must be capable of producing this glycolytic stress in a controllable, programmable way. All these requirements are predicated on the athlete's strength, which must be adequate to the task before more elaborate preparations are necessary. This type of specialization both in terms of exercise variety and metabolic specificity, is completely irrelevant until the athlete has advanced well beyond the novice phase of training and is already very strong. And very strong means different things to different athletes. A 300-pound lineman cannot be considered very strong until he is squatting 600 for five, while a 135-pound marathoner might well be considered very strong at 185 for 5. Now keep in mind that strength is the basis of power and most other things as well. And though it might be tempting to do a football-specific program when your squats are only two and a quarter for 5, the time wasted in an attempt to be prematurely specific is very expensive in terms of performance on the field. A lineman who squats two and a quarter for five against a lineman who squats 600 for five gets mashed every single time, no matter how specifically he is prepared. Remember, getting strong is the best general preparation for any sport where power is a factor. So general, in fact, that it becomes the most important thing you can do. New exercises added to a program should have a purpose other than just being new. For example, for an Olympic lifter, Reasonable squat variations might be below parallel pause squats and front squats. The leg press would not be reasonable because it is not a functional movement, an exercise which works the neuromuscular system in the same way the adaptation will be used outside the exercise. Again, this does not mean that the exercise copies the precise movement pattern used in the sport. It must, however, duplicate the conditions in which the adaptation will be used. For example, cycling and swimming are not functional exercises for sprinting. The leg press does not provide the biomechanical specificity to sports played on your feet 
any major strength exercise that could be considered functional has one important feature. You should be able to fall down while you're doing it so that you have to make sure that you don't. This balance aspect of the movement, along with the fact that it can be done with heavy weights, is a critical criterion for functionality in exercise selection. If an intermediate trainee needs to add another workout, a medium or light day, to his week, or if the decision is made to cut heavy pressing work back to twice per week and substitute a variant for the third day, it might be appropriate to introduce a grip or stance variation to the parent exercise as the variant workout. This is what is meant by variation, where the quality of the workout remains high due to the careful choice of substitute exercises that accomplish the same purpose as the basic movement, but in a slightly different way. Or the purpose may be well served by doing the standard form of the exercise at 80% intensity, an approach which can reinforce technique while allowing for active recovery from the heavy volume or intensity of a previous workout. For the novice lifter, each training day of a three-day week should be a heavy day, since this is consistent with linear progression. As intermediate status is achieved, more variation becomes necessary, and light and medium days become part of the week. New exercises should be initially included on light and medium days because the neuromuscular novelty of these exercises will produce beneficial adaptations at lower intensities. This way, a light day of training can produce a significant training stimulus while still allowing for recovery from the preceding heavier workouts. It is important to note that with any new exercise, the weight that can be used increases quickly, much like the general response seen in the novice trainee. Adaptations in neuromuscular efficiency and motor coordination are responsible for much of this early improvement. When adding a new exercise, allow time for the motor pattern to ramp up in efficiency, and avoid trying to go as heavy as possible for the first few workouts, as tempting as this might be. Many injuries have occurred through the pursuit of such greed. And that is our little reading from Practical Programming for Strength Training 3rd Edition little preview for you. Book is due out before Christmas. Stay tuned. We'll keep you apprised of its availability. And thank you for listening to the Starting Strength channel. Talk to you next time. Bye.